Hi, dum-dums. It's Sally. Jen and I wanted to let you know that we are so excited that we will be back next week with a brand new episode of Dumb Love. Uh, But before then, we are excited to bring you an episode of Rock the Cash Bar from our good friends, Diane Gallagher and Ben Mowbray. You guys have heard us talk about this awesome podcast before. We love it. We love them. They're amazing. And they are so nice to let us put up one of their episodes. So enjoy the episode of Rock the Cash Bar. Go find them. Follow them. uh, Subscribe. Do all the things. And then we will see you next week with a new episode of Dumb Love. Enjoy. One, two, three. Hello, welcome to Rock the Cash Bar. I'm Ben Mowbray. And I'm Diane Gallagher. Every week we pick one song and do a deep dive into the lyrics and explain the different ways they've been interpreted. We will also discuss how the song connected to us on a personal level, focusing on all the embarrassing details. Glad to have you here. Enjoy the show. Stay gold, pony. Stay gold. <laughs> Do you know the quote? Did you ever have to read The Outsiders by S.E. Hinton when you were in school? You know what's funny is I don't ever remember reading the book, but I definitely saw the movie many times. Yeah, you probably had the poster on the wall. They were cute fellas. <laughs> so many cute boys. <laughs> Those greaser boys, The Outsiders. <laughs> I read that book in like seventh or eighth grade. It was it was required reading. Mm-hmm. And it was it was like the first book that I sort of remember going like doing the deep dive into where you'd have to like like learn the structure of the story and yet we learned about foreshadowing and why the author is saying this and we learned about uh, was it like, like like first person omnipotent or first person limited omnipotent which is I think the way that the outsiders is actually written but it was just like that sort of like teaching kids the power of storytelling which right was, yeah and I just remember there was one passage like as our episode today is of course about Elvis Presley. <laughs> and there was a passage in 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 The Outsiders where uh, where Pony in his internal monologue is explaining the difference, the massive cultural gap between the Soches and his greaseball outsiders. And in his head, he says, they liked the Beatles and thought Elvis was out. And we thought the Beatles were rank and Elvis was tough. But that seemed like the only difference to me. Of course, greasy girls would have acted a lot tougher, but there was a basic sameness. I thought it was that and money that separated us. Oh, interesting. And I remember like our our teacher, like, because we didn't really know what the the word rank meant there. We also didn't realize like, like, what are we talking about? Like, why can't you like Elvis and the Beatles? And my Canadian English teacher had to explain that sort of, it was the first time I had to learn about the cultural schism of the 60s and how they're represented by by the Beatles and Elvis. It was really kind of like a... I didn't think of it very much at the time until this week when I started rehearsing. I was just like, holy crap, that was really my introduction to, to what American pop culture is kind of about. Yeah. Right there in that book. I guess that's why we had to read it. Because I always look back on it and it's like, it's a weird book to latch onto and force every kid to read. And I was like, well, hang on a second. Maybe it really does have something. I'm really surprised it's... that they made you read it in Canada. <laughs> you guys are obsessed <laughs> with us. <laughs> We haven't got a culture of our own. We're trying very hard to create one. <laughs> Once we take our skates off, we don't really know who we are anymore. You're just looking over our fence like, what are you guys doing? <laughs> what are you up to over there, eh? 
You guys having fun? You look like you're having fun. Whoa, it looks like you're not having a lot of fun now. Okay, you're having fun again. (laughs) (laughs) But it's weird because like if you if you believe as I strongly do that this the stories we tell ourselves and the stories that we learn about are what what unite us and define us, then eventually at some point you gotta reckon with the king. Like you have to come and listen to his story. And it's probably better if you pay more attention to the myth than the actual realities, because it's the myth that's more important. Like it's, it's what the guy eventually became. Like, I don't know how you felt about Elvis until this week. Like I've never, I thought of him as sort of like a, kind of like a lame relic that you might find at like history's garage sale. You know, like, I, <laughs> like if you said Elvis, I immediately picture like a velvet Elvis, you know? Oh, or, do like, you? Like, yeah. And usually like in the, in the back of a cab of a semi truck or something like that. Or, <laughs> or <laughs> just like, I always thought of him as, as, as like somebody else's hero, you know, but it's not, after kind of dealing with him for a while, it's it's hard not to think of him as as sort of like a like I kind of think of him as this guy that just sort of just like naturally sprung up from the earth, you right. know, like almost like a like a spiritual conspiracy theory. Like his birth <laughs> is just so unbelievably romantic. His story dovetails with America so neatly. It's hard to think of it's hard to think of as anything else. Like in the fifties, he's rich and prosperous and dynamic. In the sixties, he's confused and adrift. And in the seventies, he's decaying and dying. Like it's hard not to see him as, as an obvious window in America. It's crazy how his life is really cut. Cause what we're doing today is the eras of Elvis fifties, sixties, and seventies. And it's crazy how much like almost to the day he is like, this is fifties Elvis. This is 60s Elvis. I mean, it changed with the decades so much. Um, it almost seems pre-written, like you're saying. Like it just exactly. Like, like Elvis hard... is a logo of American history in this past century. <laughs> <laughs> One of my favorite songs, and we may have talked about it before, is called Tupelo, and it's by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. And it's specifically about Elvis, but it's a character song. It's a song that if you believe that that Elvis is the devil's music and and the bringer of the devil's music, if you're one of those like backcountry preachers that was that was insisting like like this is going to corrupt our culture, Nick Cave was asking like like well what would a song a rock and roll song by one of those preachers sound like? So he wrote this song Tupelo, that is really really scary in a way that only Nick Cave can be, but it really touches on the romance of Elvis. And if we're gonna start, we might as well start with his birth, right? Mm-hmm. So Elvis is born in 1935 in Tupelo, Mississippi. His parents are very, very poor. It's the height of the depression, and they're living in one of the the roughest spots of the of the country. Elvis was uh, he was a twin. He had a twin that was that was stillborn. So the way Nick Cave puts it, he says uh, in the song Tupelo, in a clapboard shack with a roof of tin, where the rain came down and leaked within. A young mother frozen on a concrete floor with a bottle and a box and a cradle of straw with a bottle and a box and a cradle of straw. Well, Saturday gives what Sunday steals and a child is born on his brother's heels. Come Sunday morn, the firstborn dead in a shoebox tied with a ribbon of red. Wow. So it's just like, that was one of the, my opinion of Elvis changed this week. Like I say, I thought of him as kind of as, as, a, as a dusty thing from the past and I, I don't see him that way anymore. But I think that I'm a big Nick Cave fan, and this is when it sort of started. I started to understand a little bit about what Americans think about Elvis, that he yeah. is this sort of thing that may have always existed out there in the trees somewhere. And it was just right. like like some kind of like spiritual force, like cobalt in the ground or something like that was just waiting for the right time for him to arrive. Like, no, there has to be TV. We've got to <laughs> wait for television. <laughs> like, <laughs> 
Yeah, and you know, I'm, I'm sure a lot of people going into this episode are wondering how deep we're going to get into the um, Elvis stole rock and roll from the blues from the black community. And I actually don't want to give it there's plenty of people you can go talk to about that. Um, and I don't think the black people that played with Elvis at the time even saw him that way. Um, there's arguments to be made on both sides. But let's just look at it this way. Elvis grew up in poverty. And he grew up with these people and he grew up in gospel in church this movie this 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 type of music is in his soul just as much as it was theirs he had white skin they had black skin but he connected with this in the same powerful way that they did did he become more famous with this yeah he was a white guy in the 50s there's nothing you can do about that um it's the way people were but um he wasn't malicious he wasn't like i'm gonna take this sound and pretend it was my own he was always very open about what he was doing yes yeah and he was and he was pretty he was grateful to I mean, the very. obviously he understood that that he owed a, a debt of gratitude to that yeah. uh, to that kind of music did you read anything about roy hamilton probably i have 15 pages of notes ben sure <laughs> what the hell are we thinking with this episode <laughs> This was the big, the big find to me. Like if you listen to, there's a singer called called Roy Hamilton, and he is obviously Elvis's biggest influence. Like you listen to Roy Hamilton's voice and Elvis Presley's voice, and you can see mm. that like this is the progression. Like this is where it came from. Like he was a guy who's just like I want to sound like that. But there's also like the other thing that struck me about about Elvis this week was the sheer joy that he played with. Yeah. Like I. I never looked at him as, as he just never seemed real to me until until this week, until I started you know, like watching long documentaries that took him from the beginning of his life all the way through to the end. And you can see like the the whole arc, like you know, where the where the bloated, sweaty Elvis came from and where the you know the, the good looking, really ritzy sort of Elvis came from. It was um, I don't know, it was a real, real eye-opener to me to to understand like, okay, this is like I always thought it was, it was just showman stuff, but the more right. that I watched him, and I performed a couple of times, I know I know six chords. Yeah, you know, like I I, I know, and I perform at karaoke. I know what it's like to be like <laughs> like caught up in the music and think yeah. that you know like like that you're that you're communicating something through it. And and I I never saw that in in Elvis before the way that I did this week at, at, in every stage of his career. Right, when you we don't know much about Elvis and you just look back at him like a relic, you think that maybe all that was manufactured in some way. But there's a story behind everything, and he is genuine. Um, yeah, we'll even start with his how the leg shake began and uh the how genuine that came about like it wasn't like a um he wasn't doing it to make girls scream uh he was doing it because he was fucking nervous and he couldn't keep <laughs> his legs still so yeah. yeah we'll get to that yeah it's like literally the most famous case of restless leg syndrome <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah i mean it's so crazy that like that became that's what made him famous. And I, I was like, why can't something that's so anxiety inducing for me make me famous? Like the first time I read on stage, I was holding paper and it was literally like this. Like I was, so, I was convulsing and I was like, so we can't make this a thing? Is this a cool way? To <laughs> I just adore the way he bites his nails and smokes his cigarettes down to the quick. <laughs> it makes girls like, <laughs> no 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 i don't think it's gonna work that way <laughs> all right so, so for the listeners this is how we've decided to to um 
di- easily digest this. You know, we like to go through the lyrics of songs. So we picked one song from the 50s, one from the 60s, and one from the 70s. And then we're going to talk about his life and career within those decades as well. So the first song, Ben, are you ready to do this? Or did you have more before we get into the first It's one? Blue Suede Shoes. There we go. Well, it's a one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go, but don't you step on my blue suede shoe. Everyone knows the lyrics for this one. Well, it's one for the money, two for the show, three to get ready. Now go, cat, go. This is going to be long on my Elvis impression, really, <laughs> which is which is not good. Somebody told me, I don't know if it's true, but somebody told me that, that Elvis was once asked, like, because people were doing impressions of Elvis, even while Elvis was was still alive and big. Uh, he asked him who the, his favorite Elvis impersonation was, and he said it was Andy Kaufman. Oh, really? Which, yeah, which really, I mean, I guess it makes sense because yeah. Andy Kaufman's not, he's the one who's not doing it sort of sincerely. You know, like, <laughs> right. <laughs> the big joke is the mass living. I can see Elvis like chuckling away at that one. Yeah, probably. He's probably just a big fan of comedy. Mm-hmm. But don't you step on my blue suede shoes. You can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoes. Blue suede shoes, Diane. Um, God, I just don't know where I want to tell some of these stories. Well, I'll just say the first line, one for the money, two for the show. That was a nursery rhyme. I don't know the nursery rhyme. Do you? No, I don't think I do. Mm. Okay. Probably just old. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or we um, were never nursed. We should talk about how Elvis never wrote any of his songs. He's very much like Elton John in that way, except Elton John had one guy write all of his songs. Elvis had multiple people. But um, I have known since college that who wrote Blue Suede Shoes was Carl Perkins because I, and I hope someone who's listening to this knows who he is. I went to Tomball Community College and I had Professor Bob Eubank as my government uh, teacher. Bob was kind of famous in that area. And I'll just give a quick story. Bob uh, made it real easy. You didn't even have to buy a book in government. He's like, you have three tests in this class, three tests. That's it. <laughs> and it's all memorization from what he told you and what he wrote on the board. And his writing was fucking chicken scratch. So you had to listen and record. And he told us on the first day of class, he's like, on the final, you're going to have three questions. I'm going to tell you the answers to these questions today. If you don't remember it, tough shit. Um, And one of them was that Carl Perkins wrote Blue Suede Shoes. One was Kitty Wells is the queen of country music. And the third was that the best classical song of all time was Tchaikovsky's 1812 Overture. I remembered that every day of my life since college. (laughs) And I have it right here on his government final. Out of 133 points you could get, I got 130. I fucking nailed that shit. (laughs) Well done. (laughs) Do I remember any of this shit now? No. No. How does a bill become a law? Give me a break. I mean, I yeah. I filled a whole page explaining how a bill becomes a law. I don't know any of that shit anymore. But anyway, Carl Perkins wrote Blue Sway Shoes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carl Perkins is a wild story as well, too. I didn't I didn't realize how close he came. That was a apparently he was like literally on his way to go perform on TV and be the first like rockabilly, the first rock and roll star on national TV. When he crashed his car, song. yeah, with this song, and then and and crashed his car. I didn't realize that. I mean, I've always heard his name as like he's he's the rock and roll pioneer that you probably never heard of, but right. I didn't realize that he was literally like that dramatically close. And that car accident killed his brother. 
and mm -hmm. uh he kind of fully never recovered from that mentally and neither did his career which is really mm -hmm. sad so everyone should uh everyone should know that carl perkins wrote this song and became very very close to be the you know the person that could have been famous with it but yep which is that's i mean and it's just another way that the magic ether in america is writing the elvis presley story like no mm -hmm. carl perkins you cannot be the king of rock and roll because you don't have a deceased brother you're only you get to well, you get the now. power of your brother exactly you <laughs> exactly it's just like you have to complete you haven't had the tragedy yeah like you don't you don't bear the mark yet you yeah know, you think you're on your way you think you're getting close and then bam no like it's i'm gonna go that way with this like i yeah. think elvis is magic now i really do i think I, he's uh, I think you might agree. And maybe, you know, they talk about Elvis's brother who died and that he talked to him all the time and he prayed to him. Mm -hmm. And um, he really kind of had a burden in his whole life about being the one that lived. And, you know, for sure. So mm -hmm. maybe, maybe that brother is part of that magic that helped, you know. For sure. Like, it's, or the idea that he's, that he's living for two, you know? Yeah. He, he talked about having a, having a dream where he was, he was performing with his, with his brother. You know, there was a spotlight on Elvis and a spotlight on his, on his brother, Jesse. And in the dream, you know, Elvis said it, my brother had a, had a voice that was so much more powerful than, than my own. So wow. I do think it was with him the whole way through. But anyway, you can knock me down, step on my face, slander my name all over the place and do anything that you want to do. But uh-uh, honey, lay off of my shoes and don't you <laughs> step on my blue suede shoes. <laughs> I couldn't I wear blue it. suede shoes. They're way too flashy for me. I have a pair. They're boots. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm wearing blue canvas shoes, but I don't mind if you step on them. That's all right. Yeah, I don't take care of my shoes. Mm-hmm. Oh, let's go, cat. Let's go, cat. Mm -hmm. But you can burn in my house. Go ahead. Oh, let's, let's hear it. You got to do your Elvis impression now. But you can burn my house, steal my car, drink my liquor from an old fruit jar, do anything that you want to do. I'm losing character. But all, <laughs> but all, all honey, lay off of them shoes and don't you step on my blue suede shoes. <laughs> you can do anything but lay off of my blue suede shoes. <laughs> so basically, Rock. there's not a whole lot to this song. It's just kind of that. It's fun. It's fun. And what's more fun is the story that became behind the writing of this song. <laughs> yeah, it's fun. And all it's meant to be is fun. Yeah. That was the thing at watching all these, these documentaries, especially the ones in the, in the, from the, you know, the mid fifties where they're, they're, they're showing Elvis's performance and then showing, you know, preachers railing against him and everything like that. I never got the impression from Elvis that he was trying to shock. No. That he was trying to provoke, you know, he's like, I'm having, I'm having fun. You know, there's interviews with him where somebody was asking, it was a famous interviewer, they're asking him like, like something along the lines, like, like, do you feel bad about us? And he said, no, because I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong. Right. You know, and, you know, and it, it, it wasn't like he was trying to be like, like some libertine. He wasn't trying to set you free. He was just like, when he plays this music, he feels free. And that is tangible. You know, that's something that, that, that he can share with you. And that's why he became the myth that he did, because he, for whatever reason, you could, you could touch that when Elvis was doing it. There's also a part of like, you know, a lot of these singers that probably didn't grow up the way Elvis did, didn't grow up around like the black community and black gospel and the black church. Like when you see, like we, I saw the difference between black church and white church growing up. White church mm -hmm. is boring as shit. Black church is like, you've 
burned a thousand calories. It's active. They're, they're active with their bodies and their emotions. And Elvis just grew up around that. So he wasn't like these, I don't know, Dion and the Belmonts type characters that were just stiff and moving side mm -hmm. to side. Like he's like, I feel my music. I feel what's happening here and I'm going to show it. Yeah. It's easy to see that, that he learned that music is joy or that he mm -hmm. felt that music is, is, is joy. Yeah. Right off the get go. So I'm going to do a lot of reading on this episode because li listen, guys, it's we're doing all of Elvis. OK, I can't memorize all of it in a week, but I do want to kind of just read the story of Blue Suede Shoes, like why it was written, because I think it's great. So let's see. First of all, blue, blue suede shoes were a luxury item in the South, a stylish footwear for a night out. You had to be careful with them, though, since suede is not easy to clean. So. Carl Perkins never owned a pair, but Johnny Cash told him a story about someone who did. As Cash told it, he and Perkins were performing at a show in Mississippi with Elvis. When Presley was on stage, Cash told Perkins a story about from his days serving in the Air Force in Germany. Cash's sergeant, a black guy named C.V. White, would wear his military best when he was allowed to go off base. And at one point, he said to Johnny, don't step on my blue suede shoes. The shoes were really just Air Force issued black, but... White would say, tonight, they're blue suede. Um, <laughs> so the story Perkins told is that later on, he was playing at a high school sorority dance when he came across a guy who wasn't paying much attention to his date, but kept telling everyone to, uh, not to step on his suedes. So apparently, don't step on these fucking shoes, uh, meaning his blue suede shoes. So at 3 a.m. that night, Perkins woke up and wrote the lyrics based on what happened that night and the story he heard from Cash. Um, and he couldn't find any paper, so he wrote it on a potato sack. <laughs> Great. Um, again, writing on a potato sack. Don't step on my expensive, fancy shoes. <laughs> um, God. So, you think that potato sack is still around somewhere? God, I mean, how a, much money is that worth? No kidding. That is an <laughs> artifact. <laughs> they just, I bet he didn't even think to save it. You know what I mean? No. Probably just got tossed. So um, you already told the story about him driving to to Memphis to, um, to record. Well, he recorded this with Sam Phillips and he was driving to do this on television and he got in that car wreck and his brother died. Um, but see... But one more thing about the song, the lyrics describe some of the things that Perkins would prefer over getting his shoes scuffed. And the list includes uh, some derelict behavior, they said, yeah. uh, stepping on his face, stealing his car, burning down his house and drinking his liquor. Some of the Sinatra loving older generation were horrified, Ben, horrified <laughs> and used the song to back their case that rock and roll was the devil's music. I mean, stepping on my face? <laughs> what is wrong with people? How fucking square was it back in the 50s? It's amazing how it happens generation after generation because Sinatra was scandalous in his day. Like yeah. you would think you would think eventually we'd learn it's just like, okay, the kids are gonna outrageous. It's yeah. what kids do. Right. The Try world is to gonna change drastically from when you were a kid. It's gonna happen every fucking generation. Calm your ass down. Yeah. <laughs> I personally can't get over their bad fashion these days, but mine was awful too. I gotta get over it. <laughs> The amazing thing to me, or one of the, of the many amazing things about Elvis is, is how quickly it happened for him. Yes. Like, like, I mean, it happens quickly for a lot of these people because obviously the music industry wants you when you're young. Yes. But to think like, like he went from, he graduates high school in 1953 
and I think he's working as like he's looking to get his like electrician certification and he's working as a as a truck driver. And I guess in those days, apparently you can still go into Sun Studios and, and record. Just anybody. Like anybody can walk he in. did. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. But, Let's do but it. Even yeah, like still <laughs> to this day. Like yeah. our, our our friend and, and guest, Rob Mungle, has gone and done it. <laughs> like, oh my God. Like, <laughs> I want to hear that. Yeah, me too. I, I want to go do that. Like it'd just be so much fun just to stand on that spot, you know, that microphone, go do it. It'd be just legendary. But to think of it like, like so he goes and he records two songs, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And nothing much. It just goes to show you just how, how different things are. Like, like, like his his goal, I guess, is that he's going to go and, and, and make a couple of records. And then those records are going to go from Sun Studios to the local radio station. And then hopefully it's going to be a hit on that station and then go to another station. You're going to gradually build out from there. That model is gone now. No, like that whole, doesn't work. Yeah, yeah the, the old th- thing that everybody says about Elvis is, is he's the guy who did everything before anyone else did anything. <laughs> you can't even work his blueprint anymore. Like, like no. his path to fame is forever blocked off. You're not getting on the radio from, they don't put nobodies on the radio. Anymore. No, no. Mm. What's well, funny about that story, because this was like 1953, he did it on his lunch break. He just dropped in there, records two songs, and it cost $4. And then, you know, the, it wasn't a sound that Sam was looking for. I think it was just kind of like whatever. Um mm-hmm. Just to be able to do that. I mean, we did it at Astro World, you know, singing someone else's <laughs> music. But yeah, he just popped it on his lunch break and recorded a couple of songs. But Sam remembered him. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then that was 1953. So in 1954, uh, Sam Phillips teams him up with local musicians Scotty Moore and Bill Black. And um, the breakthrough recording is Arthur's Big Boy, Arthur Big Boy Crudup's That, that Ain't Right. So this song becomes the first of five singles Elvis re- will release for Sun's label. Yeah, it's it's that's all right. I think you just misread it. But what did like, I say? You said that ain't right. That that's ain't. all right. Yeah, I'm I'm having a beer at one o'clock. This is gonna happen a lot in this episode. That's the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> July thirtieth, nineteen fifty-four. Same year. Elvis makes yes. Elvis makes his first appearance at the Overton Park Shell in Memphis. And this is the show where his nervousness gets him, gets his leg. Yeah. Gets his leg all pumped. He wasn't Forrest Gump. It was just nervous. <laughs> yeah. The girls are screaming. Mm-hmm. And that's when it starts to go. Like, like, and how, how wouldn't he blow up? I mean, Elvis is, Elvis is gorgeous. He's got that infectious energy. He's got those deep blue eyes and those puffy pink lips. He's a giant too. He's like over, he's like six feet tall and, um, yeah, just the yeah. dark features, and he's he's not boring. That's the thing with Elvis. I think these teenagers were bored, and he was not boring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was ready to set things off. Yeah. Yeah. And from there, it's just it kind of it, it it blows up rather quickly for him, right? Like he becomes, yeah, a, you know, like a, a regional sensation. He becomes a regional star, you know, playing in you know in local shows and everything like that. And then he starts getting booked on on regional TV shows. Another thing that doesn't exist anymore. No. So he, gets, yeah, he gets booked on a show called the Louisiana Hayride. And that's uh, going to be a fun one to go back and watch. <laughs> like, I watched a documentary that, that showed like like all of his TV appearances like in their entirety. And that was kind of work at times because obviously our, our media world moves a lot faster than it did in the 50s. But it really must have been just something else yeah. to see something like, like, like Elvis like for the first time like, like like if you were if you were 12 or 13 years old and you're clicking on a tv which is brand new to you and then you yeah. see this guy where 
everything about it must seem brand new to you and everything about it is wicked. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And your parents are, you can hear your parents in the background, like, what is this filth? You know? And you're like, what is yeah. this filth? <laughs> <laughs> so somewhere along this way, like as he's sort of built himself up to be this regional star in, in 1955, he crosses paths with Colonel Tom Parker who is an amazing we should we could do a whole episode just on on colonel tom parker and, and maybe we probably should an and amazing life. the whole episode will be me just shaking my head because whereas he pushed elvis to all of his fame uh i don't like the guy don't like the no. colonel <laughs> no because he's straight up carny blood like he, he is, is. That's, that's where he comes from man he is a big top carnival con man he learned all those lessons he used to he used to he, he made famous the uh, the dancing chicken show, which was just like he would just take a chicken and he would put straw down and, and put a chicken on a hot plate and the chicken would would dance to the music. So he had he trained a chicken and that was his big that, that was his big draw. Like he was literally a carnival barker con man. That's literally a, exactly what he did to Elvis in the sixties. That is the perfect yep. metaphor for what he fucking did to Elvis in the sixties and seventies. That's what I'm talking about. You, 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 like a novelist would like, like would it, it's a, it's a screenwriter. It's the the magic ether of the United States scripted Elvis's life perfectly. All the metaphors, all the foreshadowing, everything is all there. Like, <sighs> so let's mention real quick because so we don't have to mention it later. We're going to do some foreshadowing, like you talked about in the Outsiders. Uh, let's give a little bit of history on. Uh, so Colonel Tom Andrew Parker, born Andreas Cornelius Van Kuji, I can't say Dutch words, Parker, <laughs> had immigrated to the U.S. at the age of 20. He resided in the country without legal status for the rest of his life and never left the country's borders. He changed his name and claimed to have been born in the United States, and his Dutch birthplace and immigration status were not revealed for many years. A carnival worker by background, Parker moved into music promotion in 1938. He also assisted Jimmy Davis's campaign to become governor of Louisiana. As a reward, Davis gave him an honorary rank of colonel in the Louisiana State Militia. That's where he got that nickname. This yeah, is I'd important him, later. <laughs> yeah, I'd always thought of him as a, as a Kentucky colonel. I thought he was like Colonel Sanders. Like he right? was in that, that weird order of Kentucky colonels. Like, no, it's it's a, it's a Louisiana colonel. It's, yeah. a, it's a slight demotion from Kentucky colonel. <laughs> And can we just say real quick, out of all the way we spell words in the world, Colonel pisses me off the most. Oh, God. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I could never read it right. Well, yeah, Colonel. When I was a kid, I would always read it as Colonel. But from there, it's like Elvis is, is off to the races. Like he, he, he meets Colonel Parker and Colonel Parker really puts him on the on the fast track because he Colonel really Parker, he knows what he's doing. Like no doubt a guy like Colonel Parker, once he got into the into the music business, was looking for somebody exactly like Elvis Presley. Mm -hmm. Like there's no doubt he was looking for somebody who could bring the 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 joy and the and the mystique of of black music to a white audience. Like yeah. it's some of the things that, that that Elvis gets blamed for or Elvis gets criticized for are kind of beyond his control. You know, like mm -hmm. you say, like 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 he was born where he was born. He fell in love with the things that he fell in love with. He was influenced by the things he was influenced by. And then he met a guy who could help him realize his dreams or help him realize his potential who's going to turn that down yeah you know colonel parker That's really a, was jet fuel for his career i don't think uh anyone else would have 
rocketed him to fame faster than the Colonel. Um, mm-hmm. He immediately signs the now famous RCA contract. Um, the price is an unprecedented $40,000 with a $5,000 bonus for Elvis. So this is 1955. He graduated high school in 53. In 1955, yeah. he signs with RCA Records. And uh, this is just the start of like how insanely fast he rockets to fame in the That's 50s. Cr- a 20-year-old kid with $5,000 in his pocket in 1955. That's incredible to think of. Yeah. I mean, you saw how excited Wayne and Garth were to have $5,000 in 1991. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> I'm still excited. <laughs> you can do a lot with it. That's a vacation. <laughs> a nice one, like an expensive one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Where do we go from here? Okay. We should make... go ahead. It's Elvis's hot rise. Like he is, this is, this is the golden age of Elvis. This is as, as Elvis is that. So Colonel Parker obviously has access to these things. He's able to, uh, you can see some of the, some of the flyers, you know, they called them some of the weird nicknames, like the, the atomic singer or something like that. And there's these new newspaper ads that say things like, Hey, teenagers, 12 days from now. So yeah. Colonel Tom Parker is doing like all the things like he's taking out ads in advance, the same way a carnival booker would the same way, a, you know, a, a circus would in advance in the next town and, and, and building up uh, anticipation for Elvis, you know, at a real grassroots level, like yep. literally in newspapers on the backs of, on the backs of magazines. And it's growing and growing. Like he's getting bigger and bigger. Uh, one of his first TV appearances after the Louisiana Hayride on national TV is, uh, well, first he appears with, with Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey, but he appeared on the Milton Burl TV show. Have you seen that appearance? I have. <laughs> Oh my God. Like once you know some of the, some of the Elvis story and you see what, like, like, first of all, it's funny. Like Milton Burles, you know, trying to have a good time. Elvis is nervous. He's on national TV. Nobody really knows how to use the, the TV medium real well. Like Elvis has got it because he's got his, his, his dynamic performance and his, and his great good looks. But, uh, but Milton Burles, an ugly kind of guy, he's there because he's funny. Yeah. But so Elvis is performing as obviously as Elvis Presley and the Elvis visage with the pompadour and the fancy suit and the guitar is already very famous. Right. You know, so as a joke, Milton Berle comes out from backstage after Elvis's after Elvis's performance. He comes out dressed as Elvis doing an Elvis impression. And he comes out and says, I'm your twin brother, Melvin Presley. And and he didn't know. He didn't know. Milton Berle didn't know. Elvis did know that this bit was going to happen, like Elvis, but he didn't mention it to Milton Berle. He didn't say, he didn't talk at all. And if you know it, and maybe, maybe, maybe I'm, I'm projecting onto it or I, or I want to see it, but like I backed it up and watched the moment a couple of times. And I swear you can see Elvis wince a little bit. Like, you I can. You can I did the yeah. same thing. I did the same thing. <laughs> I, I zoned in on his face the minute he's like, I'm your twin Burl. And you can see Elvis just have a second of a moment of like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then it happens again a couple of minutes later because uh, Elvis flubs his line. Like instead of calling instead of calling him Melvin Presley, he calls him Milton Presley or something like that. Yeah. And Milton Burl's big quick comeback is like, "Oh, you must have had another brother." And it just like you're just like watching this like, "Oh, man. so cringe inducing." <laughs> but you know, I'm sure Burl regrets that, and he's he. I'm sure he was like, "Why didn't someone tell me?" You know, but. Yeah. Um, <laughs> It's cringe Milton Burl created cringe comedy, man. Ricky yeah. Gervais, Gary Shandling, you owe Milton Burl a debt of gratitude. <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> 
But that's when he goes into the like like the it's 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 it, he kind of doesn't really like he's causing a sensation, but it's more or less a positive sensation. Mm-hmm. Like it's not until he starts breaking into the into the big leagues, you know, but he goes on, he gets caught up in like the the, the tonight show, the, the ratings wars have been going on forever. So he gets booked on on Steve Allen's show yeah. and, and has a big reaction. And the episodes that that of, of Steve Allen's show that Elvis is on beat uh, uh oh my god, where's my the Ed, beat beat Ed Sullivan yeah. on the uh in the ratings so that's when ed sullivan who was kind of being like a what he was presenting a moral barricade yeah that's when he sort of relents and lets elvis presley on and those are the big famous elvis tv performances that's right. where the girls go crazy and he's swinging his hips all over the place and he's not nervous about it anymore now yeah. he's just like he's just in the music this is just the way he's learned to play at this point he's definitely sexualizing it or he's, oh, he's yeah. learned to so like what he's had milking it now <laughs> yeah, he's definitely putting the goods on, on display but that's when things really sort of take off and he becomes like okay this is the devil's music and you're you're leading the, the youth astray yeah yeah the first time he's on ed sullivan he does it and so when he goes to do it again they just record him from the waist up which they thought would be better but what it did was made like you could tell he was doing something below that his waist and it just priscilla yeah. presley says it just made it forbidden fruit the girls just wanted yeah. it even more because it's like oh i can't see what you're doing but i know what you're doing yeah it didn't work <laughs> their their plan did not work <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's a tv star now like elvis on the tv is a huge big deal like it's a it's a major major event so it's not yeah. long before before hollywood starts calling because this is in, in these days, it's like 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 now we think of it like if you're a movie star and a and a music star and a, and a TV star or a stage star like like that's rarefied air and it's I mean obviously it's rarefied air for Elvis as well but nobody had ever done this before so right. it's not long before the the movie the movie studios come calling and that's big money for Colonel Tom Parker and for Elvis Presley. This was a thing that really surprised me. Like his first movie, Love Me Tender, show you know, like plays in in New York, and they do the, the big famous unveiling of the forty foot Elvis billboard. I'd always thought of Elvis movies as kind of like like hokey Elvis vehicles that I, I didn't think of. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think of them as like lavish Hollywood productions, but they really were. Like King Creole was directed by Michael Curtiz, yeah. the Michael Curtiz. Cas- Michael is that Curtiz. Casablanca? Yeah, Casablanca. Yeah, one of the greatest movies ever. Like he's, yeah. he's the guy. And that movie, before it landed on Elvis, King Creole was was going to be James Dean's next film after after Giant. Like he was all geared up to go to, to go and do that one until he died in his car accident. So we're talking about serious. I mean, James Dean was a serious thespian. You know, yeah. New York Broadway trained actor who was going you know going into Hollywood to do the serious work of, of Marlon Brando. Like I think of, of King Creole as an as an Elvis movie, which is you know corny old Elvis up there, you know, right, right, turning up his lip at you. Like it would have been completely different had it been had it been James Dean. I had no idea it was Michael fucking Curtiz. Me either. Um, and you know those were good movies. His kitschy, terrible movies didn't come until the '60s. But like King Creole mm. is said to be Elvis's favorite movie that he ever did. Mm. Um, and I've only seen a clip of it, and I think it looks really good. Like I love the singing part you can tell it it looks like it's filmed in the french quarter in new orleans there's this big like singing he's singing back and forth off a balcony to the lady and it sounds great i was like i need to watch this Mm -hmm. and it's during the shooting of of king creole that elvis receives his draft notice which is bizarre for a couple of reasons there wasn't a war on at the time 
so it wasn't they, they, it wasn't like a massive draft. Like, we, right. like I think of the draft as always being at like late sixties, early seventies Vietnam era levels. It wasn't at that. Like it was yeah. like if you were a young man, you weren't really all that concerned about being drafted into the army because they just weren't taking a whole lot of people. But he got his draft notice, and of course he's he's famous. He's Elvis Presley. Like he can grease the he can grease the pockets. Like things can be done for him. But he doesn't. You know, some people say that it's on the advice of, of Colonel Tom Parker, who's saying like, well, okay, your reputation as being this salacious bad boy could really be burnished by you going and, and serving in the United States Army. Maybe that's true. Maybe it isn't. Wow. Maybe you know, Elvis is the uh, is the is the good boy from the country that everybody thinks of him as, and, and thought, well, you know, my country has given me so much, I'm going to go give something back. Yeah. But it's just strange how once again, this guy's whether it's in retrospect or whether it's by some magic ether plan, this guy goes right to the heart of our cultural conflicts. You know, like, yeah. like even before the, before the Vietnam era, before it, it really comes to a head, here's Elvis's story laying the groundwork for, you know, Elvis joined up, why can't Muhammad Ali? You know, that kind right. of, of conflict, like he's just constantly there in America. For as long as he was alive, he was at the forefront of everything in America, either, you know, defining it or, 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 or a victim of it. Yeah, yeah, he was like the the poster boy for everything that was happening. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that was um hold on, did I lose place in my notes? Ed Sullivan. Okay. He did King, King Creole and then yes, he is inducted. Okay, so yeah, that's what I was going to talk about the dates again. I just get like blown away by these dates. 53, he graduates from high school. 58, he's a famous person, super famous, has done a couple movies, and now he's going into the army for two yeah. years. And Arguably uh, the most famous person in the world. I mean, the yes. president of the United States and the queen of England and Elvis Presley. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so let's see, it's 1958. He works on his fourth movie, which is King Creole. That's early 58. In March, he's inducted into the army. Uh, he goes to Fort Hood in Texas for basic training and is stationed there for six months. And then August, his mom dies. Uh, yeah. Which is, we don't go into it enough. It's crushing for Elvis. He, Elvis loved his mama <laughs> a lot. Yeah. Yeah, there were people who said it was a kind of relationship, the kind of mother-son relationship that you couldn't tell where one ended and the other began. And and, and he and, and she felt like a real psychic connection to each other. There was a famous story of uh, there was while he was touring, kind of you know in the in the years prior to, to this period, uh, he was on a tour bus and uh, and the bus caught fire. So he he's, he you know jumps off the bus and he immediately calls his mom and his mom answers the phone and says, "Tell me about the fire." Like what? I mean, it's it, maybe it's an apocryphal story. Who knows if it's true or not? But it's it's a story that gets told. That's why I say like, don't get bogged down in the reality because the myth is way more important. Right. And that's the idea. Like they were just that connected to each other. Like the mother can feel like like something's happening. You know, like my my boy's in a panic. And I do think there's something to that. Like I really oh, do think yeah. can form. You know, I think it's I, I don't have kids, but I think especially with your offspring, you can probably form like a. Yeah, this is a long episode. I don't want to derail it with personal stories, but yes, it's not mythical stuff. There are connections that you have with your child that people won't believe you if you say it, but it doesn't matter. It only matters what you know. And you're like, yeah, no, they you are connected yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, in very strange ways that will come up through your life. So he does get to go see her before she dies. But then in September, he boards the USS Randall and sails to Germany. So 
1958, so we know we're not going to see Elvis for a couple of years. But so that's the end of the 50s. But one thing that does happen while he's in Germany is that he meets Priscilla Beaulieu. <laughs> Ooh, big moment in his life. But before we get to Priscilla, on the on board the USS Randall, he meets another very important person in his life. You know who he meets on the USS Randall? Who's that, Ben? Charlie Hodge. The man <laughs> brings him his scarves and his water. Charlie Hodge. Charlie Hodge. Remember the Memphis Mafia, Charlie Hodge. Charlie <laughs> Hodge was made famous in Bill Hicks's great comedian, great Elvis impersonation. But he has a, just a long bit where he's just Elvis on stage collecting his scarves. From Charlie Hodge. <laughs> <laughs> Charlie Hodge. There was a time I had two guys, one man who brought me my scarves and another man who brought me my water. But then one day Charlie Hodge came up to me backstage and he says, <laughs> says Elvis, open your mind real big. All right. <laughs> oh man. It's sad it's sad that that's the only two impressions you're probably gonna do in this episode. <laughs> I yep. want more. <laughs> so he meets Priscilla. And obviously, this is one of the one of the hinges of his of his life. Priscilla is, of course, real young when he meets her. Uh, there is a ten year times. difference. Yeah, ten year difference. So, so, but that's a dramatic ten year difference. We're not talking thirty five, twenty five. Like this is this is twenty five, fifteen. Like yeah. it's a she's real, real young. But yeah. he's Elvis Presley. So apparently, the story goes, or at least the, the story is she, like she meets one serviceman who's. You know, apparently just a nice guy who just wants to talk to this Priscilla's beautiful, even at 15. She's an absolute stunner. So this guy's talking to her and he says, do you want to meet Elvis Presley? And the story is told very innocently. You know, it's like, oh, this is a guy who just wants to do a nice thing for her. Like, oh, come on. I know how guys work. Yeah. Like that guy's trying to use his access to Elvis Presley to get oh, yeah. access to Priscilla. Which is so Blew dumb. in his face, man. <laughs> 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 Not a good idea. No. no. <laughs> I don't know so why he, he thought that. I would be like, please don't know that I know Elvis. Please don't. Yeah, do exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so Priscilla, obviously, like, like the guy invites her, like, do you want to go to a party at Elvis's house? Because Elvis is like, the story goes that Elvis is just like any other GI, but Elvis is not like any other GI. Elvis is living in his own house off base. His grandmother is with him. Like they're doing everything they can to, to take care of Elvis. Mostly like, like, Partly because I'm sure Elvis is a real distraction to the esprit de corps. I'm yeah. sure there are plenty of like army sergeants just like this fucking guy. <laughs> Focus! Stop staring at Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So I'm sure they had to make special plans for the most famous man in the world. So she gets invited to this party, but now she's got to go to her parents, and her her father or her or her stepfather yeah. is a uh, is a is in the is the air I think the air force. So he's yeah. a military guy as well. So. They relent, which I imagine you would eventually. Like your 15-year-old daughter really wants to go meet Elvis, you know. So they set up like a, a, a military, uh, what's the word I can't chaperone for mm -hmm. her. You know, they send, you know, her, her dad sends one of one of his trusted friends to, to go watch out for Priscilla. And she goes and hangs out with Elvis. And it's exactly like it's the it's the army version of everything that you picture at like Graceland in the early 70s. You know, it's Elvis. <laughs> his army buddies, his grandma's cooking in the kitchen and everything like that. And <laughs> Elvis is just sitting at the piano, entertaining everybody. Yeah. Tinkling the ivories. And of course, Priscilla says, it was like, he was looking at me like he was playing just for me. I'm like, yeah, he probably was, lady. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he probably was. <laughs> but it does get a little lately. So, so they, they, she, she goes, you know, one night and then gets invited back to, to another party. And apparently it's at this next party where, you know, Elvis says like, I want to see you alone. 
I'm not like alone in the kitchen with grandma, but I want to see you alone in, in the room. So Priscilla says that she was nervous, but she also said that Elvis was a perfect gentleman, that they just spent hours just talking and, and laughing. And, uh, and from this point on, and again, I don't know if I believe this, but the myth is more important. This began the idea that Elvis never slept with Priscilla until their wedding night many years later. Like they didn't get married until I think it's 67, right? Yeah, it's way later. Yeah, I have it in my yeah. notes, but yeah. So I think it's seven years after this, but Priscilla insists that no, no, we, 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 Elvis didn't do anything. He kept saying things like he wants to keep me pure. He wants to keep me, you know, which I guess you know, makes a certain kind of dude sense. I mean, obviously <laughs> I can't put myself in, in Elvis's head, but I mean, he has probably had hundreds of women at this point in his life. And if he meets one that he's really stuck on, yeah, it seems to make perfect sense that he's going to treat her a lot differently than he treats the other ones because right. he wants it to be different. Right. right. Like he's still, just because he can have every woman in the world doesn't mean he's not a romantic. <laughs> right. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And mama probably taught him a little better than that, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Treat this one with a little respect. You know? Yeah. So, so that seems to be what he's doing. Uh, Obviously, this is causing a lot of stress in Priscilla's household. Like her parents are very, very worried about this. Like here's this rock and roll star who happens to be in this German town stationed as a GI. He's only going to be using her for entertainment, which I'm sure is arching more than eyebrows. Like they must yeah. be just scared to death. And of course, they know how they know the world better than, than a 15 year old girl does. And, they, and they're telling her this. They're just like, look, he's Elvis Presley. He's going to go back home and he's going to forget about you. Like they must have been worried, like having a teenage daughter on a military base. Just worrying about these just regular Joes, yeah, showing up. Like, tell, like, no, these guys are here temporarily. They're yes. not your life. They're here. They're gonna rotate out. Yeah, so, like you can't fall in love with any of them. Right. And she ends up falling in love with fucking the worst Elvis. Of the best of them. <laughs> yeah. Elvis. What are you gonna do? Yeah, sure. His parents yeah. are like, "Are you fucking kidding me? We have the <laughs> hottest daughter in this military town, and El Elvis." <laughs> <laughs> And they must have been worried about it, like from the get go. Like, oh fuck! <laughs> yeah, Priscilla, no makeup. Keep Priscilla inside. <laughs> Priscilla, Priscilla, wear a potato sack. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> potato sack with the blue suede shoes on the back. I can get you a one hot potato sack, Priscilla. Yeah. Oh my God, uh, we've been going at this for fifty-two minutes, and we're not out of the fifties. We let's keep going. All right. We got to pick up the pace. All right, so I think the story of Priscilla is pretty important. So bullet point it. Elvis goes back to uh, goes back to the United States, and he resumes his career, and he picks it back up in a big way. Like he, yeah. he starts off uh, with a, a a TV special that he does with the aforementioned Frank Sinatra. Yeah. And this is where the Elvis of the '60s sort of begins. Like it's welcome home. This is where we begin now. the '60s. Yes. Yeah. He's a nice guy, Elvis. And the song that you pick for the '60s comes much later in the '60s to Elvis. It's not, Way it's later. Not the beginning. Yeah. It's called it's called If I Can Dream, and it's a it's a huge, big, famous Elvis standard. It was the closer of the big 1968 uh, Elvis comeback special. And I think we got to talk about the '60s a little bit before we build Let's, up to. I think the same thing because this song. I don't want to talk about it because there's so much that happens before this. Uh, so let's talk about what happened in the sixties up until the 68 special. Yeah. And what happened to Elvis? Yeah. So he's, he's on the welcome back Elvis special with, with Frank Sinatra. And it's, of course, it's a huge big hit and it really does polish his image. Like he's, he's Elvis nice boy who, who joined the service now. Nice, nice boy who did his bit. He's a different right. guy. And he goes back to uh, back to the movies. He plays one show on board a uh, on board a ship in Pearl Harbor, right? Right, right. And it's and like this, 
first of many charitable acts that he does. It's a charity thing. Yes. And, and it's, it's for the, it's for the Pearl Harbor Memorial. And yeah. as, as fate would have it, it turns out to be the last time that Elvis would perform music live for seven years, seven, seven years, seven or eight years. Yeah. Until, until you know, the end of 68, when he does the, the 68 comeback special during that time, he's contracted to do a whole bunch of movies and Elvis did over 30 in his, in his, which is a lot. Of damn That's movies. a lot of movies in a short amount of time. Mm-hmm. There are huge big movie stars today that have, that don't have 31 movies on their IMDb page. If you're in 31 big Hollywood movies, you are a big time actor. I mean, obviously yeah. he's Elvis Presley, but I mean, that's a huge output for a guy who's also putting out movies. But he's known pretty much entirely for his soundtracks. Like, the, like his, he's not really releasing albums. He's releasing songs that, that have been written for him specifically for these movies. So he's slowly losing his grip on the culture, as you do when you get older anyway. Yeah. And sweeping in behind him, of course, are, are the Beatles, are, are Bob Dylan. Uh, even you know a guy like Johnny Cash is sort of rising up and, 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 and taking some of the, the country music fans from him. So he's losing his, his showbiz vitality. You know, he's, he's adrift in yeah. the 60s. Yeah, that's what's really sad is like Colonel, the Colonel just kept putting in him in these contracts. And this is where like the bad movies kind of start, just the little kitschy movies. And so while he's making these just kind of goofy movies, teenagers have shifted their focus to the fucking Beatles and Bob mm-hmm. Dylan and the Beach Boys and all these um, writers, these bands that are writing their own songs, too. And that's a big deal because Priscilla says Elvis was never interested in writing his own songs ever. Um, he did towards the end of the 60s. And we'll get to that. Realize I want to only do songs that I personally emotionally connect with. Um, But he misses this, like we talked about this in the Kinks episode when they get banned for like a very important part of the sixties and how detrimental that could have been to them. Elvis was not in the music scene in the, in this like very important time in the sixties. And it hurt him. It hurt him, but it's also crucial. Again, magic ether. It's crucial to how we think about Elvis, because if he yeah. had to, to perform and, and compete with the Beatles, we'd probably be seeing a very different Elvis. Yeah. You know, we wouldn't think of Elvis as, a, as, the, as the patriotic balladeer that we think of him later on. If he was trying to compete with the Beatles and be a part of that counterculture, which I think he almost certainly would if he had having to go out and, and play live and, and hang on to the, to the youth audience, I think we'd have a very different picture of Elvis. I and really do. Uh, but it, it's it's also he never forgets about Priscilla. Like he like right. obviously he's off and he's doing his own thing. He's making movies with Anne Margaret when Anne Margaret Mar- was always smoking hot. But yeah. peak Anne Margaret, he's linked to her. Uh, and and the rumor has it that she put out you know the story into the press that she and Elvis were seeing each other. Maybe they were. Maybe they weren't. Again, the myth is what's more important. Right. But Elvis puts out the, the Elvis's people put out the story and then squash it. And that might be Colonel Tom Parker saying like, no, we need our man to be single. We need yeah. our man to be single. Yeah. But he never forgets about Priscilla. Yeah. And he starts, he calls her periodically, but not nearly often enough for her because she's back in Germany and then obviously, you know, lovesick, my boyfriend Elvis. Yeah. You know? Yeah. But finally, he basically like he, he asked her to come out to, to, to Graceland on in, in 1962. And, and so she's not. Yeah. So she's 16 or 17 now. And, uh, and of course that's crazy. Like you yeah. want, so you want to leave your, you, first of all, you want to leave us for Christmas. This is uh-huh. her parents talking. You want to leave <laughs> us for Christmas. That's a big no, no. Uh-huh. You want to leave us to go hang out with Elvis at his home in Graceland. No, that's not going to happen either. And you're only 16 years old. Yeah. And she, yeah, but she hadn't graduated from high school yet. Yeah. But it's Elvis. 
And that's what I think that like, how do you, how do you look at your teenage daughter and crush it? Like, how do you say you can't have this? It's dangerous. Knowing that like, you have to weigh the option of like, we think this is better for her and she's going to hate us forever, (laughs) you know, for it. I mean, a hard, hard grudge. And so God, I can't imagine having to be a parent in that decision being like, Oh fuck! Okay, go. God damn it! <laughs> you know, <laughs> just go, just go. Jesus Christ! So she goes, and it's Elvis romance. You know, he uh, he's he's singing her songs, he's buying her gifts, he's showing her around, but she's also being like introduced to the Elvis lifestyle because Elvis, you know, uh, learned about methamphetamines and drugs in the army. Like that was that was, and it was back then. That was just how you like methamphetamines were looked at as this miracle drug. They help yeah. you focus. They give you you know peak energy. Right. Uh, so he didn't think of it as 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 abusing drugs. He didn't they didn't think of it as dangerous. It was just no. like no, I have this lifestyle that demands a lot from me, and here's the magic pill mm-hmm. that can help me out. Obviously, My go-go juice. Still, yep. And we clearly still do that today. I mean, yep. obviously, still something going on. Uh, so. I don't know if it's during this trip or, or, or later on, but but he he's, he's giving her uppers so that she can stay up all night and, and party with them. They're still not sleeping together, but they're doing like they like you say, one pill to wake up and one pill to, to slow down. So he gives her two sleeping pills or two downers and she's out for two days. And according to her, when she wakes up, Elvis and, and Vernon Presley, his dad, are having an argument about whether or not they need to, to call the hospital. Oh my God. So can you imagine, like, I'm sure Priscilla didn't tell her parents about this, but this mm. literally is the nightmare that they're worried about. Like you were pass out on drugs in Elvis's house for two days. Get your ass back home. Fuck this. We made a horrible mistake. What were we thinking? Bad parents. <laughs> <laughs> she moves from, from Germany to Memphis for the last year of, of high school. So now she's, she's living with Elvis. She's yeah. Elvis's and, and the local newspapers and the local gossipers know it. And they refer to her as like, the Memphis Lolita or the, you know, the, you know, the Graceland. Yeah. Uh, so it, it's not, a, and it's an awkward situation because obviously all the kids in her high school know that, that she's Elvis's girlfriend and she's yeah. got a lot of conflict. Like, do they want to be my friends or do they just want to come over to my house and, and meet Elvis? Right. Oh God. Like, I can't tell if I think this is awful or like fucking awesome. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so exciting. <laughs> little column A, a little column B for her, I'm sure. Yeah. And of course, like Elvis is, is away all the time. Like he's in Hollywood. He's got a home in, in Beverly Hills where he's he's living and, and working on all of these movies. They don't have him by accident. Pumping so he's home movies. on the weekends, maybe. Mm-hmm. So they're only they're not seeing each other very much, but obviously he's keeping her, you know, in style in Graceland. And he's also dyeing her hair and buying her dresses. Yeah. And you know, all of those things. So yeah. we would call that he's grooming her now. Yeah, um, we would. Yeah. We really would. We would look at this relationship totally differently today, and we're right to do it. Yeah. Uh, this one turned out kind of okay, you know, in the sense that Priscilla doesn't seem to bear any real. I mean, well, I mean, obviously everybody bears the psychological marks of their life, but it it doesn't look like he did anything truly untoward to right. her, other than other than taking her youth and forcing her. He probably he, he certainly didn't think of it as forcing her, but, no. but he really did rearrange her whole life and and make you know basically wrapped her life around his and right. made her dependent on him in a way that she eventually like like thinking about their divorce because it happened. I mean, they get married. It was a flash word. They get married in '67. That's when they finally make love. Nine months later, to the day, to the Lisa day, Marie Presley is one. So more magic. 
There's magic <laughs> at every turn with this guy. Like he, so he has his beautiful daughter nine months to the day after his wedding. Incredible yeah. to think of. Yeah. Uh, we're skipping over obviously quite a bit, but they get divorced uh, not long after Lisa Marie is is born. I think I think a couple of. I years. think they're married for like four years. Right. Yeah, Something but um, like that. and obviously, yeah, but they've been together for seven or eight, seven or eight. Yeah. But it's all, it's when when Priscilla is twenty seven or twenty eight, naturally, like she's she's having an affair with like because she's being left alone all the time, so she's going yeah. to like dance classes and and she's like filling her life up in the in the best way that she can. But she doesn't have a have a husband anymore because Elvis had a weird thing where it's just like, well, now that you're a, a, a wife and a mother, it was like she was no longer sexually attractive to him. It was like like you're a mother now. You you're not my you're not my beautiful girlfriend. You're not an object of desire. You're matronly. You know, yeah. like he, like some people, you can talk about it for days, but some people say that, well, psychically Elvis must have been started thinking of Priscilla as his own mother. And, you know, like he just, right. so he's not sleeping with her anymore. And she starts having affairs. Yeah. Uh, and, and some of them are, are, are long-term and Elvis goes a little crazy at one point as he's on drugs and starts ordering a hit out on, uh, on this dude, Mike Stone, who, uh, who Priscilla was having an affair with. He was just crazy on drugs. And he's literally like, he's going to the Memphis Mafia guys. He's just going, I got $10,000. One of you got to go kill Mark oh, Stone. Oh God. You hire somebody. And of course, like nobody says no to Elvis and the Memphis Mafia. So they're just like talking around it and trying to calm him down. But apparently for weeks, he's just insisting, I have $10,000 for the man who kills me, Mike Stone. Oh my God. I did yeah. not come across this in my research. This is news to yeah. me. I mean, there are some lures, and again, like who knows? Like these are if these are true or not, the myth is more important than than the okay, truth. But yeah, for that, sure. that, apparently he went absolutely mad. But it's almost like 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 I say that that I don't think that any. It's I don't I, I want to talk correctly about this, but I also want to talk gingerly and sensitively about it. I think the divorce is is clearly Priscilla re regaining her strength and regaining her sense of self. You know, yeah. I think she probably got like, okay, I was a wide eyed fifteen year old. This man is wonderful. I fell in love with him. He's treating me completely differently now than he treated me to begin with. The relationship isn't what it once was. I got to figure out who I am. And yeah. I can't do that if I'm going to be Elvis's wife. I can't yeah. do it living in Graceland. I have to have some independence. So she gets divorced. And this becomes obviously the, the kind of the, another hinge in Elvis's life when he meets yeah. her and when he loses her. Yeah, it really is. And one thing to say, though, is that they talk about the divorce being it's sad, but it's amicable. Like she said, they were holding hands during the divorce proceedings in court and that he always stayed close with her and Lisa. So mm. it wasn't tumultuous. Uh, it was understood. Like, uh, it's almost like you're just like, yo, you're too famous. Like, yeah, mm. I can't, I need some attention and you're too mm -hmm. famous. I can't do this. Yeah. Um, so good for her. I mean, I don't know. Like some women could have completely just been like, whatever you want, Elvis, I don't care. And But like, she was like, no, I matter, which yeah. good for mm -hmm. her. So it's all of this. It's these very real emotions. It's his, it's his marriage. It's his, it's his, the birth of his, of his first child that I think kind of brings him back to, to what's important artistically and what's important to him as a, as a man. And yeah. he's working on all of these films that, that he doesn't really like, and he's doing it kind of half-heartedly, and they're taking him away from his new family, and he can feel that family life eroding. And I think that's when he decides, as I think a lot of rock stars do, that if I'm going to go away from my family to, to tour or to, or to make music, then it damn well better be important. You know? Yeah. Like, I, I got to have a good reason for, for leaving my family behind. And that's when he decides, I think, to come back to the music to music and that leads us yeah that leads us to the 68 comeback special and if i can dream 
If I can dream of a better land Where all my brothers walk hand in hand Tell me why, oh why, oh why Can't my dream come true? And if I can dream. So if I can dream is the last... So let's just talk about the special. It was made for tv it's a made for tv special and for this is the first time priscilla sees him live um it's not like a big stage performance this is the first time she physically gets to see him perform and um they were going to have him do all i want for christmas or something like a christmas song to close out the show Mm -hmm. and then two months prior to this martin luther king is killed and they come up with the idea the guy who wrote if i can dream writes the song specifically for Elvis, who was crushed. He was a fan of Martin Luther King and was crushed by this news. So he writes this instead, which the Colonel didn't like. And then mm-hmm. Elvis finally kind of stood up for himself is like, let me try it. And then as he's singing it, after he hears the demo in rehearsal, one of his backup singers is crying, like visibly bawling, like tears down her face and says like, you can tell he means every word, like he feels this. And this is yeah. where Elvis said, I will never do another movie or write it or sing another song that I don't believe in. So this song yep. was kind of a pivotal turning point. Yep. And, it, and it comes right out from him. I mean, Elvis is a Memphis boy and Martin Luther King, as we know, was, was assassinated in Memphis. So I'm sure mm-hmm. Elvis as a white Southern man who grew up in Memphis was well aware of the kind of feelings and hatreds and, and, and just the, the sheer ugliness that yeah. caused something like that. Like I'm sure Elvis must've been looking at like, 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 I'm sure he was deeply ashamed that it happened in his hometown, but I'm sure he was also just like, well, it was bound to happen in my hometown. Right. Like, and I think that's and obviously, you know, connected to like all of his heroes, all of his musicians, everybody who had, who had taught him how to do the things that he'd done, who had given him his life, had given right. him his guitars, taught him how to dance, taught him how to play, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, like obviously it, 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 it bubbled out of him. I think in a, in a sincere way. That's the other thing that I was struck with, with, with Elvis is I always thought of him as, as, as fake, especially going into the, into the seventies. I mm. thought it was just, just, just rank insincerity. I thought it was treacly, you know, middle-aged right. bullshit. Right. You know, maybe it's, it's me getting older or getting a better sense of the man, you know, like, like to watch him on the, on the 68 special or the concerts after it and doing, doing the, if I can dream, like, like this is obviously a guy who was, who is singing very emotionally. He's yes. really exposed in the middle of this. This isn't acting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's he's not acting, he's channeling. But that's hey, that's Elvis in the sixties, man. Are oh we, man. Yeah. So uh are we get should I mean, do we have to go through the lyrics? We should just read the lyrics of If I Can Dream because there's words pulled right out of Martin Luther King's uh I have yep. dream speech. So let's just read through them quickly. There must be lights burning brighter somewhere. Got to be birds flying higher in the sky, more blue. If I can dream of a better land where all my brothers walk hand in hand, tell me why, oh why, oh why, can't my dream come true? Why? There must be peace and understanding sometime. Strong winds of promise that will blow away the doubt and fear. If I can dream of a warmer sun where hope keeps shining on everyone, tell me why, oh why, won't that sun appear? We're lost in a cloud with too much rain. We're trapped in a world that's troubled with pain. But as long as a man has the strength to dream, he can, redeem, he can redeem his soul and fly. Deep in my heart, there's a trembling question. Still, I'm sure that the answer is going to come somehow. Oh, there in the dark, there's a beckoning candle. And while I can think, while I can talk, while I can stand, while I can walk, while I can dream, please let my dream come true right now. Let it come true right now. Right now. Mm-hmm. 
This and the next song we're going to cover are Priscilla Presley's favorite Elvis songs. If I Can Dream and An American Trilogy. And of course, this kicks off like the the sort of the, like the third wave of Elvis. Like this is this is Elvis is back. Uh, it's 1968, so he's still. I mean, he's, he died at 42 in 77, so he's still a very young man. He's right. you know, 31 and 32, uh, still good looking and still performing. Like, right. Like still, but now enters sort of like he's he's on the road, but he's also like Vegas resident Elvis. Yeah. So where it really. What's crazy, we talk about like things shift on a dime, like 70s Elvis does the exact opposite of 60s Elvis. 60s Elvis does a bunch of kitschy movies that he doesn't believe in. 70s Elvis is like, I am only doing music I believe in and I'm not doing any movies and I am touring and taking long, long stints in hotels, like, and then the drugs ramp up to accommodate yep. this lifestyle. And then like we mm. we had jumped forward, we talk about this is early in the 70s is when his marriage falls apart. This is when him and Priscilla divorce and he's constantly on the road singing, he's doing the uppers to stay up, he's doing the downers to go to sleep and you've, you see it wear on him. You see him start to look like someone who's pushing himself way too fucking hard. Yeah. He goes from he goes from the the best looking man who ever lived, like this this angel who came out of the magic ether to to scorch us all, and then he starts turning into into a real man again. Like <laughs> <laughs> for those yeah, who aren't the- watching on YouTube, this is one of my husband's hoodies that looks like Elvis's. Uh, what was it? The uh, Aloha from Hawaii in Honolulu. <laughs> It looks mm-hmm. like his jumpsuit, but it's a it's a full on hoodie that my husband wears on purpose in public <laughs> all the time with his mohawk <laughs> and his tattoos and people pull their children away from him in the grocery store. That's how he, he dresses. <laughs> yeah. He's a rhinestone cowboy. (laughs) Okay, before we close out the timeline of Elvis in the 70s, let's just quickly do the song, an American trilogy, because there's not a whole lot to explain about it, and the lyrics go pretty fast. But this is the song that he would close out Vegas with. I wish I was in the land of cotton. Old times, they're not forgotten. Look away, look away, look away, Dixie land. Oh, I wish I was in Dixie, away, away. Now it's it's called an American trilogy because obviously it's based on on three songs. I thought that like like I, I thought the song American trilogy was 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 just the title of it. I didn't know like I knew I knew the Battle Hymn of the Republic was was in there. I didn't realize that uh, that there were two other you know right. like really famous folk songs in the in, in this one because like I say I'm not a I'm not a big uh, I wasn't a big Elvis fan until I didn't this know. week. Yeah, I didn't know either. Yeah. I had to go back and uh, and and look at a couple of those things. So the the next lyric is is uh, in Dixieland I take my stand to live and die in Dixie. For Dixieland I was born. Early Lord, one frosty morn. Look away, look away, look away, Dixie Land. Every time I heard this song, I always thought that this was uh, like I 
I've always I thought of Elvis as uh, like I say like like a, a historical relic or like the Velvet Elvis paint or the Velvet Elvis paintings, but I also saw him as uh, as an icon for American racism. Like yeah. I really thought it, like in this period of life of his life, he'd become you know the the, the white Southerner who who'd stolen the magic of rock and roll from black people, and that's why white people loved him, or they loved him because he went into the army and Muhammad Ali didn't, or, right? You know, or he you know represented America and and was a, was a flag waving guy while while the Beatles and Bob Dylan were out there you know criticizing Elvis was the one who stood firm with the pack, you know, and I thought this song was his way of, of, of signaling that, or, or creating that, that myth around himself. But uh, it's the Battle Hymn of the Republic, like the Dixieland that is, is part of that. But then he goes into the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which is the freaking Battle Hymn of the Republic. Right. <laughs> I mean, this is the, yeah, this is the marching song of the, of the Northern Army. The Union Army. Still, yes, <clears throat> and this is still the guy, you know, who, who, who sung this, this song, specifically closed out his biggest show ever, with a song pleading for the exact same thing that Martin Luther King was 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 preaching for, so I don't think it's any accident that he's that he made damn sure that if he's going to sing a hymn to the South, that he's he's, he's going to come in and make sure that that you know where he's where he actually stands morally right. coming down, no matter how he may be misinterpreted or misunderstood by people like me. <laughs> yeah. And then it goes into so hush, little baby, don't you cry. You know your daddy's bound to die, but all my trials, Lord, soon be over. Glory, glory, hallelujah! His truth is marching on. The big crescendo ending. The last part of it, so hush, little baby, don't you cry, is from a song called "All My Trials," which is a a, 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 a Bahamanian. It's a, a Caribbean black uh, lullaby or 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 you know, spiritual. Uh, and that's where that one came. Many, many covers of that one. Joan right. Baez did one. It was a it was a big, big folk song to, to cover in the sixties. So I think it's really interesting to to weave those three songs all into one. You know, yeah. Yeah. Album. Yeah, that's what I and it makes me like Priscilla, like knowing that like this song and If I Can Dream were her favorite Elvis songs, which means, you know, she really kind of wasn't aligned with him as well in that same nice yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, and and that, I mean, she's she's his his wife and and the mother of his child and his and his lover. So so she's probably got the best sense of the man of, of anybody on the planet. So it might right. be it might be you know sort of her way of protecting his legacy to to make sure that those songs get highlighted. You know, and right. the, the rest of everything that's been projected onto Elvis and everything that he, that he came to mean to the culture. I think it might right. be her way of saying like, don't step back. This is what was really important to him. Yeah. Um. So you know, my timeline of Elvis in the seventies. Um, it's a whole lot of like, he's just performing. He's just performing and he's getting a divorce. But some really nice things happened that shouldn't be glossed over is that he started winning, winning Grammy awards and they were always for his gospel albums. And like I said, those were the ones that meant the most to him. Like this, this was the kind of music that touched him the most. And it showed he won awards for these. Um, in 1972, he made entertainment history when he sells out Madison Square Garden multiple nights. And among 80,000 attendees were John Lennon, George Harrison, David Bowie, Bob Dylan, Art Garfunkel. Um, and they said his stirring rendition of an American trilogy was the highlight. Uh, surprisingly, this was Elvis's first live concert in New York City. That's unbelievable to me. Which is fucking I, crazy, right? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely insane like how are you famous your whole life and you've never played new york <laughs> i suppose it's possible that i mean i mean like the the big love me tender grand unveiling was in new york so it's pretty clear that he was big there but i wonder if there's just that 
that north-south schism where it's just like, yeah, the kids in New York don't want to come see this this southern farm boy. I, yeah, I don't know. So, but that leads me into this. So, like, okay, in July of seventy-two, right after this, Priscilla files for divorce. So, like, his life is great and awful at the same time. Um, and then the next year in seventy-three, he he tapes his Aloha from Hawaii, which is taped in Honolulu, and one point five billion people see this. It goes around the world. The reason this happened is Elvis always wanted to go perform overseas. Like he went to Germany in the military, but he never performed overseas. And the fucking reason is because the colonel was not a U.S. citizen and couldn't go with him and was afraid that he wouldn't be let back in, that, you know, he would the jig is up. He's not a U.S. citizen. Yep. And that is why he's like, oh, instead of you performing overseas, how about we just broadcast to the world? Where I'm like, you motherfucker. Like, that just makes me so mad at him. <laughs> and then in that same year, the colonel, I'm sorry, I'm screaming into the microphone now. The colonel uh, sells RCA, the singer's royalty rights, uh, his entire catalog, which uh, it's a good deal for the colonel, but bad for Elvis and his heirs who could have enjoyed a lifetime of income off of his songs mm -hmm. um which such as i just if we ever do a, a podcast on the colonel you're just gonna hear a mad diane <laughs> bottom dealing carnival bastard Fucking dude <laughs> but for some reason elvis um he had issues with him there's there's interviews where he's just like you fuck that guy or whatever but he never fired him and he for some reason did what he said and trusted him. And I don't sure if I'm ever going to understand that relationship. I think it's because he's the guy who, who made it happen for him. You know, like he's the guy who, yeah. who showed the ropes. Like there's, there's a reason why, I mean, all like the, the, the stones have Andrew Luke Oldham and, uh, and everybody that we've talked about has that fights with their managers and their, yeah. and their record labels, because it's a really, really difficult world to negotiate and you need somebody who can guide you. And I think a guy like Elvis is just like, like, I don't know the world and I don't want to worry about that. I want to play my music. I want to live yeah. my life. Like yeah. go talk to the Colonel, go talk to the Colonel. Yeah. God like, I can see it. Like it, it definitely, it, it certainly looks like it's the Colonel feasting on Elvis, but I think it's a, I think it's a two way street. Like they're like, I don't think it was equal. I think if Elvis had paid more attention to his affairs or if he'd let Priscilla take care of his, his affairs, yeah. Then, well, yeah. then maybe he would have been, he would have been more protective, but yeah, I think it's just a thing that happens. So, you know, we're going to start getting into the mid to late part of the 70s where it's just, you know, hospitalized again for drug related issues. Hospital, you know, had to cancel a gig because he's back in the hospital. But there's one little thing I want to talk about quickly. Um, I don't think we're going to have time to get into Nixon. <laughs> a lot of people know the Nixon story. You might have to just Google that on your own. But I, I like this because I didn't know it. Um, while back at the Hilton, he received an offer. This is 1974, uh, which could have been a pivotal moment for him. Barbara Streisand and her hairdresser boyfriend were, uh, they wanted to offer Elvis the lead role in her remake of A Star is Born. Um, and this would have given Elvis a long awaited chance at a serious acting role, even though I think, you know, early movies could have been more serious like we talked about but the 60s were just garbage i'm sorry to anybody yeah. that loves elvis movies in the 60s but it's garbage um but and it uh, would have been fucking awesome like, it would have been amazing awesome. yes Can you imagine like elvis in his declining years in the male starring role of a star is born would be like like that's just more ether magic that's i feel like, like it's, it's, 
that was a trip in the universe's like guideline like layout of elvis it's like shit we missed that one for some reason yeah. that one didn't come to fruition and i think it was mm-hmm. an accident it should have it said uh yeah. He was bored on the road and he needed a new challenge, but regrettably it just never came to fruition. And I think it had a lot to do with him touring a lot and he kept going to the damn hospital because he kept having issues with drugs. And that's, you know, a lot like the character in A Star is Born. (laughs) But um, exactly. And not to be not to be too crass, but it's also like if you're going to be on the silver screen, you got to be good looking, man. And yeah. and the Elvis is getting doughy and sweaty at this point. Like they could very well be that. I don't know if you ever went for a screen test to it, but they may very well have like like put Elvis, doughy Elvis side by side with 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 young seventies heartthrob Chris Christopherson and just went. I can't really do no, it. Uh, there's no comparison. Yeah, like, like even Priscilla says she can't watch those late performances like before he died because she's like. You could just see him on stage like he was struggling like mm-hmm. it's almost like imagine your worst hangover ever and you have to go be the king with this worst hangover of your life and you're not looking good and you're fat in a jumpsuit and you're sweating it just wasn't the way people wanted to see elvis i mean i know priscilla's just like that's not the guy i knew no but it's also like it's it's elvis at his most tragically poetic you know mm-hmm. like it's it's easy to wax romantic about this version of elvis because there he is right there for you to do it like he's up there lonely in the spotlight you know estranged from his wife and daughter yeah. you know basically alone even amongst the the memphis mafia entirely isolated by his fame entirely isolated by his drug use yeah. and isolated by his own his own visage you know yeah. and, and literally if you want to get really probably isolated from himself like there yeah. must have been plenty of times where he's looking around like i i just i don't know who i am anymore i yeah. can imagine it's really easy to lose the plot when you've had a life like elvis has had and and so fast too i mean we should mention he was engaged uh he you know with ginger alden and he had had some other girlfriends but you know i don't think he was thinking of marriage probably not i think his life was just kind of spiraling um so let's see let's see 1977 which we all know is the year he died and dying Gallagher was born. Uh, <laughs> so dumb. Um, it's, so early in 77, he uh, he tours and he's hospitalized. And then in June, concerts are recorded by RCA and videotaped by CBS for the upcoming special Elvis in Concert. The footage shows, the footage shows quite clearly Elvis's deteriorating condition. This is the one Priscilla said she doesn't like to look at. Um, the special is not shown until October 3rd after his death. Uh, June, uh, there's a concert in Indianapolis that will be his last. And then, um, in July, three former bodyguards publish Elvis, what happened, which details Elvis's drug use for the first time in public. Mm-hmm. Um, and then August 16th, Elvis had played ba- racquetball in the new court at Graceland and stayed up late singing with his friends as usual. Later, Ginger, Elvis's girlfriend made a frantic call downstairs for help. She had found Elvis lifeless in the bathroom. He was rushed to the hospital, but resuscitation attempts failed, and he's pronounced dead at 3.30 p.m. local time. Uh, while that it's true that there were drugs in his system, it wasn't an overdose. It looks like he just, his heart gave out at 42 years old. Yeah. Which, Which can certainly happen. Like yeah. When you're, when you're out of shape and you're, and you're demanding that much from yourself physically. When you're like going that, that hard. Performing. When you're going that hard, you can only your your bone machine is only going to last so long. You know? Yeah, 
it's it's the season of our lives. We we die of drug overdoses and car accidents and youthful misadventure in our early twenties. And if you keep up that lifestyle, you die of general wear and tear starting around your early forties. Yes, you do, and so I feel up. it. <laughs> yeah. I feel it happening now, and I'm healthy. Um, I. <laughs> I'm going to let the listeners, if they don't already know it, Google the Elvis Nixon story because uh, we still have a lot to get through here quickly. But I don't want to end on Elvis's death. What I want to end on, well, wrapping up Elvis because we still have to do Six Degrees of Tommy Stinson and stuff. But I want to just quickly go through some of Elvis's acts of charity, which I think are worth mentioning. Um, because mostly they're staggering. Because they're staggering. And he never, he never wrote off any of them uh as a tax deduction because he is quoted as saying like that's not really charity you know mm -hmm. um so i have like it's a whole page full of stuff so i'll just try to do the cliff's notes um he he lent his name and image to the american cancer society uh american library association march of dimes ussis arizona memorial and other organizations he gave thousands of teddy bears that fans had sent to him uh to be distributed to children's hospitals um he gave away like more than 200 cadillacs to people <laughs> during his lifetime uh he gave anonymously he paid off people's debts um every christmas he gave more than 50 he gave to more than 50 charities in the Memphis area, including the Salvation Army. Um, no one ever will know the extent of it, but my husband will fucking flip out if I don't tell the Elvis limousine story, which is favorite. Um, and so <laughs> Elvis apparently flew to Miami Beach uh, and was picked up by a limo driver and had to head to a show that was like 10 blocks away. So his driver waited outside during the event and then eventually he would take Elvis back to his helicopter. Um, reportedly, Elvis, on the way back, Elvis said to the driver, do you own this limo or do you just work for the company? And the driver replied that he worked for the company and it was not his limo. And Elvis said, well, now you own it. And apparently bought the limo for the limo driver as a tip. So yes, brand new limousine, man. Brand new limousine. It's yours now. It's your com you start your own company. This is yours now. Um, and I just don't know, like, I want to know that story of that guy. Like, did he use that and then like take that money and buy more limos? And now he has a big limousine company. <laughs> like, I want to know what happened after that. But yeah, that, look that up. <laughs> yeah, that's just like the generosity of Elvis, you know, when you're that big and he would just like kind of make it rain uh mm -hmm. to the less fortunate as much as he possibly could yep and it definitely seems to be targeted like it's not just it's not just straight up just like throwing cash up into the air like it, yeah. it, he was definitely looking around and making sure that he was helping out the people he was putting his charity where he felt it could do the most good like yeah he was a big-hearted guy and it's i don't like obviously his story dovetails with the story of america in in lovely and tragic and heartbreaking fashion sometimes but it's really it's hard I don't know if there if we would think about marriage and divorce or fame and drugs or or the like. It's impossible to overstate his real impact. Yeah. Like I always thought that that was just that was Elvis fans, you know, being ridiculous and and lionizing their hero. But the more that you read about it, and the more sort of I understand about the culture and the history of it, it's like no, this guy was at times a reflection of it, and at times a driver of it, and always a, a recorder of it. Yeah, for sure. I I'm like you. I went into this being like ah elvis is great to being like oh no elvis was elvis was great and at times his life 
was just unfortunate and kind of got away from him. But uh, I get it now. Corbin, I get it now. I get <laughs> I get the dumb hoodie you wear. I get the stories. I get how my son knows more Elvis than I do because my husband pushes it down his throat. <laughs> like he turns, he blasts Elvis every time he gives Charlie a bath. Like my kid's going to know Elvis. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I guess now's a good time to do our long awaited six degrees of Tommy Stinson with Jeremy Essig. Uh, it's a pretty good one. So let me share my screen. Hey friends, welcome to the inaugural six degrees from my new office where this week we're going to connect Tommy Stinson to the king of uh, Vegas, the king of schlock, Elvis Presley. In researching this, I found out about a recording entitled The Million Dollar Quartet that involved Elvis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, and Jerry Lee Lewis. Born out of a jam session in late 1956, the album of this recording would not be released until 1981 with a full 40-track version not appearing until 1990. On this recording, The King, The Man in Black, The Killer, and um, Carl go through a 40-song set featuring both Elvis originals and a slew of Chuck Berry covers, amongst others. And since we already connected to Johnny Cash on the Nine Inch Nails episode, let's take a minute to consider the career of Jerry Lee Lewis, a man both nicknamed and purported to be the killer. Few musicians' Wikipedia pages are as insane as Jerry Lee Lewis, and you can say that even ignoring the murder part, or the part where he mur married a 13-year-old cousin. Just listen to this gem. Lewis said that the reclusive Presley had been trying to reach him and finally did on November 23rd, imploring him to come out to the house. Lewis replied that he would if he had the time, but that he was busy trying to get his father Elmo out of jail in Tunica for driving under the influence. Later that night, Lewis was at a Memphis nightclub called Vapors drinking champagne when he was given a gun. Lewis suddenly remembered that Elvis wanted to see him, and climbing aboard his new Lincoln Continental with a loaded pistol on the dash and a bottle of champagne under his arm, tore off towards Graceland. Just before 3 o'clock in the morning, Lewis accidentally smashed into the famous Graceland Gates. So, Lewis's life was put to film in the 1989 movie Great Balls of Fire, a movie that would feature acting from the fabulous Thunderbirds and huge Ron Paul enthusiast, Jimmy Vaughn. A decade later, Vaughn would win the Best Blues Grammy for his solo album, Do You Get the Blues?, which was engineered by veteran producer John Hampton, who lists amongst his credits the Gin Blossoms' New Miserable Experience, Tommy Keene's Based on Happy Times, and yes, The Replacements, Pleased to Meet Me. So, from the king, to the killer, to a Ron Paul-loving blues man, to John Hampton, to Tommy Stinson. Stop. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Um, that was perfect. And yes, the replacements. Back to the, <laughs> and yes, the replacements. I was like, I was like, I wonder if Jeremy can, like, I was like, how are you going to get him? I was like, I'm sure a lot of people wrote songs for Elvis and it's going to tie in somewhere, but I didn't expect it to go that route. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. Our dressed up like a douche this week came, comes from Jerry Wayne, uh, Houston comedian, longtime comedian, Jerry Wayne Longmire, uh, Gordon Lightfoot song, Carefree Highway. He said he heard every highway. I will say I'd never heard the song, so I went and listened to it, and Jerry Wayne is absolutely right. It 1,000% says he's saying every highway, not carefree yeah. highway. <laughs> do you know the song? I do not know the song. I'm a lapsed Canadian. How do I not know Gordon Lightfoot? <laughs> I, do, I don't know anything, so. All right, this has been a long episode, but next week we are going to be joined by comedian Bob Biggerstaff. I can't believe it's taken us this long to get Bobby Biggs on the show. Um, and the song, did you see the song that he wants to do? Which one does he want to do? He wants to do Curie by Mr. Mister. 
Okay, I'm up for that. When he said it to me, I was like, wait, is this your guilty pleasure song? And he's like, what do you mean? What's a guilty pleasure song? I was like, oh, so this is what we're covering. <laughs> Are you fucking with us, Bob? So uh, this should be a fun episode. I'm excited. <laughs> I'm looking forward to it. This was a fun episode, too. I, I, yeah, I mean, I know it was a journey. If you're, if you're still here with us, 90-some minutes later, thank you very much for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. I... I mean, I've had some stunning reversals on this podcast. I was really surprised at, at how much my my heart goes out to to Elvis now. Like, I know, me too. All right, till next week. Rock the Cash Bar is produced by Diane Gallagher. Music by Chuck Savage and Eddie Hawkins. Special thank you to Jeremy Essig for Six Degrees of Tommy Stinson and to Sarah Wessling for the Guilty Pleasures Vocals. Our website is rockthecashbarpodcast.com and there you can find links to our Spotify playlist and to our Patreon. Thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week. <laughs>